Good morning. Welcome to Westbridge Church. My name is Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's awesome to have you with us. I want to say hello to those of you watching online. Uh, it's a great option. Thanks for uh, being a part of our online campus. Uh, hello to those of you in our parent viewing rooms. Uh, it's a great option if you have small children you prefer to keep with you during the service. And uh, anybody watching uh, in our cafe area, there's viewing there as well. Great to have you. And um, this week, uh, because of five Christmas Eve services coming up, that's just a couple of weeks away. Uh, if you are interested in serving, even if you're not on a regular serving team here at Westbridge Church, but you'd say, you know what? I want to help create welcoming environments because Christmas Eve is a time where it's easy to invite friends. So I'm going to ask you to do a couple things. Number one, uh, would you invite someone to join you on Christmas Eve? We're doing five Christmas Eve services because we want to make sure that we can fit everyone. And last year, uh, we had uh, nearly 2,000 people come through our Christmas Eve services. And we'll anticipate probably that or even more this year. And so we want to make sure there's room for everyone, that we can serve everyone. And so uh, I, I, that's why we're doing five. We, we think that we can fit a bunch of people. So I'm going to ask you to invite someone this year. The other thing I'm going to ask you to do is, uh, is it possible to, to serve at a, uh, one of those services? Pick one service time and go, you know what, even if I'm not on a regular serving team, I want to just serve at one of those uh, so I can make sure that, that we have um, enough kids volunteers and enough greeters and people making coffee and uh, all the stuff that goes on at Christmas Eve. So if you're interested in just serving, this doesn't sign you up for a team permanently, uh, but if you'd say, you know what, I'd serve at one service on Christmas Eve, uh, would you just write Christmas Eve serve on the back of your connection card and drop that into one of the giving stations on your way out or uh, at our next steps area in the lobby, or you can uh, do that on the, um, on the Church Center app as well. So any of those things, and uh, man, I can't believe that Christmas is only a couple of weeks away. It's amazing how fast time flies, and uh, it's that time of year where we're listening to Christmas music and uh, Christmas decorations, and you see the lights on the houses, and eating Christmas cookies, and one of my favorite uh, times of the year is, uh, is because of the eggnog latte. It's delicious. Uh, so <laughs> some of you are like, that's amazing. Some of you are like groaning. You're like, oh my gosh, that sounds awful. Uh, in the spirit of the season, I thought we'd start off with a little Christmas quiz this morning. Uh, so I'm going to give you uh, some screenshots from holiday classic movies. And uh, you shout out uh, as soon as you recognize the movie. If you're watching at home, you can play along and uh, compete with the people in your living room who you are uh, sitting there with. But as soon as you recognize the movie, uh, go ahead and shout it out and we'll see how many of these you get. Some of them are pretty easy. Uh, some of them uh, might take a second. So here we go. Here's the first one. What is that? Name that movie. It's a Wonderful Life. Yes, well done. How many of you have never seen It's a Wonderful Life, by the way? Oh my gosh. This is, you may as well not even celebrate the birth of Jesus. I mean, <laughs> unbelievable. You got to watch It's a Wonderful Life. It's amazing. All right. Uh, here's the next one. Miracle on 34th Street. Yeah, not quite It's a Wonderful Life level, but still a good movie. I definitely recommend checking that out. All right, here we go. Getting a little bit harder. Here we go. Bad Santa. Now here's, this is so, you're like, do I shout it? Because I know I've seen this movie, but do I shout it? It's embarrassing. I don't want to say. All right. Bad Santa. That's right. All right. Here's the fourth one. Check this out. White Christmas. Somebody got it over here. Yeah, White Christmas. I used to watch this every year as a kid. Uh, this was like family tradition for us. Uh, every time that we would, every uh, day that we decorated the tree, we would watch White Christmas after we decorated the tree. That was one of our traditions growing up. Here's another one. A Christmas story. Now, here's, here's the bonus. The bonus question. Okay, this is extra credit. Ralphie is also in another holiday classic movie. Can anybody name that? Yes, he is Ming Ming. 
in Elf. The same actor, Peter Billingsley, is Ming Ming in Elf. And some of you are you're just like, I did not know that. That's amazing. So you're welcome. Merry Christmas. And uh, glad to give that bit of uh, holiday trivia to you. And it's amazing. This is just a magical time of year. We celebrate with all of the, uh, as, especially if you have kids that, you know, they're loving the gifts. And there's, for, for those of us who, um, you know, there's a lot of nostalgia around this. You're watching some of these movies. And uh, we just watched Elf uh, the other night for like the gajillionth time. And, and I hadn't seen it in a few years because it kind of was like, oh, I'm kind of over it. And, and then we watched it again. And I was like, I forgot how funny that movie is. And it was kind of nostalgic again. And, uh, and it's amazing the memories that are associated with this time of year. But as we saw last week and we started this series, for those who are celebrating the very first Christmas, it was not a magical time of year. In fact, it was chaos, absolute chaos. And here's why. We learn this from Luke. Here's what was going on in the world uh, at the time of Jesus' birth. At that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. And so there is this uh, massive amount of chaos that's going on in the Roman Empire. In, in the first century, in the Roman Empire, there are 50,000 miles of road that the, that the Roman Empire has established across uh, the multiple nations that they rule. And that meant for people to be registered in the census, they had to go to their hometown. So if you lived in your hometown, not that big of a deal. But for many people, they had to uh, traverse miles across the Roman Empire, and they had to return to their hometown and register. And, and this meant a lot of traveling, a lot of people traveling at once uh, across the empire. And uh, it meant that it, traveling during that time wasn't like, okay, uh, man, delayed flight. Oh, that's a bummer. It, this was, no, we have to travel typically on horseback or walking. It took a long time. It was very expensive. It was oftentimes very dangerous. And so there was a lot of chaos going on in that first Christmas. And because in this, uh, it was expensive, it was dangerous to travel. And it was, is this, this first Christmas is what set the stage for the birth of Jesus, all of this chaos. Uh, because in the midst of this chaos, a king had been sent into the world. In the very first Christmas, and not just any king, this was the son of the most high God. This is what the words that the angel used to describe Jesus. The, the words that the angel used when talking to Mary. And according to this angel, as he's talking to Mary, he's saying, this king is going to be uh, given authority. In fact, these are the words used by the angel to Mary. He says, his kingdom will never end. That God is going to send a king into the world. In the midst of all this chaos, God sends a king into the world and He's going to give him authority, and he's going to establish God's kingdom in the world, and his kingdom will never end. Now, it's just kind of human nature, and part of it is we're so far removed from that you know, very first uh, Christmas, from that very first uh, sort of uh, everything that was going on in the first century, that we have a tendency to reduce Jesus to a religious figure. But that is not what he came to be. In fact, uh, sometimes we have a tendency to see him only as a, a sin forgiver, that he came to forgive my sins, and that's kind of the end of it. But he is so much more than that. Sometimes we have a tendency to reduce Jesus to a historical figure, but his kingdom will never end, which means Jesus is still a king because Jesus actually came into the world to establish his kingdom. Jesus came into the world to establish a kingdom that was not of this world, but it would be for this world. 
Jesus came to establish a kingdom that was not of this world, but it would be in this world. And he would invite people into this kingdom. And a few hundred miles away, there's a group of men whose job was to uh, study the stars. And they're, uh, they're, they're looking into the stars and they're sort of deciphering messages from the divine. And as they're looking at the stars and they're studying them and, and they, they see a star they'd never seen before and they come to the conclusion that a new king has been born and that it's, been, uh, it's a king who is a new king in Jerusalem, a king of the Jews. And so they travel to what would make sense to them. Let's go to the capital city of Jerusalem and, and we'll inquire about this new king. And so they travel and we don't know how long it takes them to travel, possibly weeks or even months to travel to Jerusalem from the east. And they, they arrive in Jerusalem and, and they are asking about this newborn king who's been born. And, and in their minds, this is kind of common knowledge. We'll ask around and people will know about it. And so uh, we discover the story of these uh, wise men in Matthew. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and we have come to worship him. And so they begin to ask around, where, where is this king? We saw the star. We came to the conclusion that uh, this is a message from the divine that a new king has been born, a king of the Jews, and so we've come to worship him. And so, and their thinking is the people will go, oh, yeah, if you go down, you know, 100 yards down this boulevard and hang a right right there, you're going to see the festival and everybody's worshiping the new king. And yet they arrive in Jerusalem and they say, where is the, the king that's been born? We've come to worship him and nobody knows what they're talking about. Nobody's heard of this new king. They get a completely different reaction. In fact, here's Herod's reaction. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. Nobody said, oh yeah, just go down here and that's where everybody's hanging out. Instead, they go, they're deeply disturbed. Why? Because if there was a new king, that meant possible regime change. If there was a new king, that meant potentially insurrection. That meant potentially civil disruption or civil war. That meant there, there was going to be uh, some potential violence in their region. And a new king meant that, uh, you know, if, if this is true, if there's supposedly this new king, and if it had actually been foretold in the stars and people from the east were seeing this, this was very disconcerting because Herod had already made arrangements with the Roman Empire. He already had some, some of his kids lined up to reign once he, was, uh, once he was gone. And he had made the arrangements with the Roman Empire that the whole region that he was overseeing would be split up to his kids so that his legacy and his dynasty would continue even after his death. And if this was true, that a new king had been born and that it was told about in the stars, then this is something significant. And he recognized this was a threat to his legacy. This was a threat to his dynasty. And if there's a new king, and if this king had been foretold in the stars, this was not good news for him. And so he decided to call a meeting. Herod, he called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? So Herod, he, he interjects a brand new word here. It's a brand new word. See, the, the men from the east were asking about a king, but Herod recognized there's something bigger going on. He recognized, if this is foretold about in the stars, I'm, I'm going to bring the, the religious leaders together, and I'm going to bring the priests together, and I'm going to ask them. These are the ones who study these things. And he says, isn't there a prophecy? Isn't there something in the Hebrew scriptures that talks about God's final king? And isn't the word that's used Messiah? And where does that prophecy say that this Messiah, this, this final king that God's going to send, where does it say that he's going to be born? 
Because I I can't remember what the prophecy says, but I I believe there's something about a prophecy. I believe there's something about God's final king. And you guys are the ones who study this. So where is that final king going to be born? And the Greek word for this word Messiah that Herod uses is the word Christ, which we often use today. Because Herod understood something that we often miss, that the word Christ is not a name for Jesus, that the word Christ is a title, and it means king. And it means that Jesus is God's final king and that he would establish God's kingdom here on earth. And Herod knew this is the fulfillment of that prophecy. And if this is the fulfillment of that prophecy, if God had made his move, then his legacy and his dynasty and his kingdom was threatened. And so he would act accordingly. And so he asks the prophecy. He asks in the prophecy, where is the location of this Messiah? And they answer him. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And then they read from the actual prophecy, which is in Micah, and it says, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be shepherd for my people Israel. And so Herod, uh, he, he realizes Bethlehem is only six miles away. Bethlehem is close by. And he realizes, man, if this prophecy has been fulfilled and if it's only six miles away, I've got to do something about this. I've got to figure out that my own kingdom is coming to an end. And so he clears the room and he asks for a private meeting and he asks the wise men to stick around. And here's what he does next. He says this, Herod called a private meeting with the wise men and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Guys, when did that star first show up? I, I know you, you came here looking for the king of the Jews and he clears out all of his council and he clears out all of the religious leaders and all of the, all of the, um, uh, the priests. And he just says, okay, just, just talk to me. When did you first see that star? I, I'm just curious about that. I want to know the exact time that you first saw that star rising in the east. And here's why. Herod was not about to sit around and watch his kingdom come to an end. Herod was not about to sit around and just let this kind of play out because Herod had been ruling for about 40 years. And he did not rule for 40 years by just waiting around to see how things played out. Herod would act. He would act accordingly to do everything within his power to save his own kingdom. Now, here is where the story of Herod intersects with your story and my story. This is where you and I kind of relate to King Herod in some ways. Herod had no problem admitting that he had broken God's law. Herod had no problem admitting that he was a sinner. Herod had no problem going to the temple to offer sacrifices. Herod had no problem with the Jewish people uh, claiming that Yahweh was their God. Herod had no problem going to the temple to offer sacrifices. In fact, Herod had actually used his own wealth to rebuild the temple. It's because several hundred years earlier, the nation of Israel had been carried off in captivity in a a losing war with the Babylonian Empire. And they had ransacked the temple, burned it to the ground. And at a certain point in time, uh, Jewish people had traveled back from Babylon and back from Persia and gone back to Jerusalem and they had rebuilt the walls and eventually they, they started to rebuild the temple, but it was never quite what it was in its glory days. And so in, in the first century, uh, King Herod decides, I'm going I'm to contribute to the temple. And out of his own wealth, he actually rebuilds the temple. And throughout history, it's actually known as Herod's temple. The second temple is often called Herod's temple because of all of the wealth that he put into rebuilding the temple. 
And so Herod had no problem with the ritual. Herod had no problem with the religion. Herod had no problem with all of that. The temple represented the place on earth where heaven and earth met. It was where, uh, in the eyes of the Jewish people, that's where God lived. And Herod had no problem with that. In fact, he invested in that. But submit to another king? Never. He was not about to bow his knee to another king. He was not about to give up his dynasty for another kingdom. And sometimes, if we're honest, we find ourselves in that same position, going, okay, God, as long as religion is religion and my job is my job, you do your thing, God going on over here, and I'm going to live my life the way that I want to, and religion is religion, and heaven is sort of out there somewhere, and hopefully it kind of all works out on the other side. But in the meantime, this is how I live my life. This is how I make my decisions. And in our own way, we attempt to keep heaven and earth conveniently separated from each other. Okay, I, I, God, I have no problem with you. I have no problem with what you do in the world. I have no problem having a belief in you. Just don't interfere in the affairs going on in my life because I'm in control of that. And on the first day of Christmas, that was no longer an option because heaven had come to earth in the form of a baby king. And he would establish a kingdom in the hearts of men and women. He would invite people to participate in that kingdom. And he would invite people from every single nation, from every generation on the, in the world. And he would invite them not just to believe in a new kingdom. He would invite them to participate. It wasn't just, okay, uh, uh, I believe that that exists, but let me live my life. The invitation from Jesus was to participate in his kingdom. And so Herod discovered, here's what he says. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. And after this interview, the wise men went their way. And the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. So weeks, potentially even months earlier, they had seen this star. And they said, OK, th this is what this means. Let's head to Jerusalem. Let's ask around. They get to Jerusalem. Nobody knows. Now suddenly they see the star again. And it says, it went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. So uh, when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Again, I don't mean to like destroy your nativity set, but uh, the wise men were not at the, you know, at the inn or the stable or the manger scene. The star didn't go to the stable. In fact, uh, it's very, very possible that this is a year later, by the time that they have traveled to Jerusalem, by the time they've met with Herod, uh, it, it's obvious that Mary and Joseph stuck around in Bethlehem for a while and found a place to live. And they're raising Jesus. And so they show up to the house where Mary and Joseph and Jesus live, and they saw the, not the baby, the child. And so some time has passed. And there they see the child Jesus, and they bow down and they worship him. They bow down to a child like they would to a king, and they worship a child like they would worship a god because God had become flesh and blood to dwell among them, and God became flesh and blood to dwell among us and to show us exactly what God is like. And when it was time to leave, when it was time to leave, they, did, they returned to their uh, own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. So they go back to their own country, and instead of going back to Herod like he had asked them to, they return back to their country. And uh, we discover from Matthew that uh, 
in another dream to Mary and Joseph, God warns Mary and Joseph not to stick around in Bethlehem because King Herod wanted to kill Jesus. And so they escape to Egypt. They flee to Egypt. And then here's what we discover, that uh, Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. They, Herod finally, he's like, man, enough time has passed. I haven't heard from these guys. And he, and he sends out scouts to find out what happened to those wise men. And he realizes they have returned to their land by another route. And he is furious that they have outwitted him. And when you read what happens next in this story, you wonder why anyone would include this in the Christmas story. It's, so, it's, such, a, it's such a terrible, terrible sort of cycle of events that takes place next. Why would you include this in the Christmas story? It's because this isn't the Christmas story. This is the story of Jesus sending a king into this world to establish a kingdom that is not of this world. And what happens is when God does that, the kingdoms of men and the kingdom of God are in conflict because God wants to establish a different kind of kingdom. And so here's what Herod does next. He acts accordingly. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod says, all right, I, I, want, I want this supposed king, this new Messiah. I want him dead. He's a threat to my dynasty and my legacy. And so I want you to kill all of the baby boys. And you know what? Approximately, it was a, maybe not quite two years since they told me they saw the star. And so every, every boy that is two years old and younger, not just in Bethlehem, but the surrounding area, I want every single one of them dead. Let's just make sure. Okay, sire, you want one baby killed. You want one child killed. So you're going to kill every kid, every single boy in, a, in the whole vicinity, two years and under. Herod says, that's what I want. Herod determined he would keep his legacy, he would keep his dynasty intact through any means necessary. And in doing so, he solidified himself as a footnote in the story of the king that he tried to have killed. Now, if it wasn't for the wise men who had seen the star, who had gone to worship him, who had inquired about the baby Jesus, it's, it's possible that this Jesus, the secret of Jesus and his birth would have stayed a secret until he became an adult. But as it happened, they, they saw the star. They went to worship him. They inquired about him. And it was dangerous to raise Jesus. It becomes pretty obvious that it's dangerous to raise someone who claims to be a king. It's dangerous to raise a child Jesus and a teenage Jesus and eventually uh, an adult Jesus. And here's what happens anytime, and this is very, very common in, in the first century, it's very common in the Roman Empire, that anytime someone has power, it, it would be very, very common for different uh, emperors in the Roman Empire, different leaders, different generals, to have assassination attempts on their life. In fact, we read that Caesar Augustus was the uh, Roman emperor during the time of Jesus, and just before him was Julius Caesar, who himself was assassinated when he was the emperor of the Roman Empire. And this was very common, that if you wanted power, you took it at the edge of a sword. If you wanted power, you took it through force and through, through any means necessary. And this is the world into which Jesus is born. And so for Jesus to be born and for someone to declare that Jesus is a king and for people to inquire about this newborn king, it really put a target on Jesus' back. And yet it was really only in Jerusalem and Galilee and Palestine. That's where Jesus 
did the most of his work. And so it, it would be nearly 45 years later, 45 years after the birth of Jesus, that anyone really outside of Bethlehem or outside of Jerusalem or outside of Palestine would even catch a whiff of the tension that was taking place throughout uh, Judea before anybody would even understand the tension of this newborn king that was born in Bethlehem. About 45 years later, Greeks and Romans and Gentiles would only begin to see that tension and what it meant in the city of Antioch, about 300 miles north of Jerusalem in Syria. So as you're looking at a map and you're kind of looking at the nation of Israel, which isn't that big, you've got the Mediterranean Sea to the west and you've got this other body of water, the Sea of Galilee to the east. And if you go between those bodies of water straight north into Syria, eventually you, you hit this city called Antioch. And in the first century, Antioch was one of the largest and wealthiest cities in the Roman Empire. And in this city, a new term had been coined. This new, uh, this new term had been invented to describe some people who were doing something. It was a response to a new political movement. Something was happening in the city because Greeks and Romans and Gentiles were, were kind of pledging their allegiance to a new king. They were choosing to swear allegiance to a brand new king, and they referred to this king as the Christ or the anointed one of God. And it was disturbing on a few different levels. First of all, it was disturbing because this king that they claimed to follow had actually been crucified 15 years earlier by Rome. And so they're going, how are, you, how are you following a king that we put to death 15 years ago? And not only were they swearing allegiance to this king, but they called him their god. And unlike all the other pagan gods, this god king did not require sacrifices. And in fact, his followers, those that uh, swore their allegiance to this king, this god king, they actually celebrated the fact that this god king became the final sacrifice for their sins. And it's important to understand in the first century, the secular and the spiritual did not overlap. In other words, the gods didn't care about your behavior. They didn't care how you lived. They didn't care how you treated other people. All they cared about was getting their blood sacrifices. And so in this world, in the first century, Rome didn't care who you worshipped. Uh, you could worship your ancestors. You could worship uh, your tribal deities. You could worship uh, whatever gods you wanted to. You could worship as many gods as you wanted to. They didn't care how you worshipped. They didn't care what rituals you used to worship. But they wanted your allegiance to belong to Rome. In fact, the motto in the Roman Empire would be this. Worship your gods. Obey Caesar. Worship your gods. Obey Caesar. You can have any gods you want. You can have as many gods as you want. You can worship them however you want to. You can have whatever rituals you want. But your allegiance belongs to Caesar. And in Antioch, there were a group of Greeks and Romans for which this no longer worked because they had pledged their allegiance to a brand new king and a brand new kingdom that was not of this world. The citizens of Antioch weren't changing their religion. The citizens of Antioch were changing their allegiance. Totally different. They would pledge their allegiance to a king who invited them into a different way of living, an upside-down, others-centered way of living. It's why we often refer to it as the upside-down kingdom of God. It was so upside-down. It was so backwards. It was such a reversal of how things were in the first century that these followers of this new king, they would actually give to people without expecting anything in return. 
They would give of their resources to help other people, and then they wouldn't expect them to pay them back. In fact, they would actually find people who they knew couldn't pay them back, and then they would give their resources to them, and they would consider that the best way to live, because that was what was modeled by their king. They would do some really strange things. They would bind themselves uh, to, uh, to one another with an oath not to commit theft and not to commit fraud and not to commit adultery. And they would bind themselves with an oath, and it was just strange language that they used. They would say things like, to carry one another's burdens. How do you do that? But they said, we're going to carry one another's burdens. The things that you carry, I'm going to carry that with you. And they bound themselves with an oath to forgive people that had hurt them and people that had wronged them and people that had cheated them and people that had even harmed them. And they even made this commitment. They bound themselves with an oath and said, we're going to pray for people who persecute us. We're going to pray for people who are, in, in our culture, considered our enemies because they were following the example of their king. And then, this was so strange, instead of going to the temple to offer a sacrifice to their God, which is what everyone did, whether you were following the law of Moses and you were practicing Judaism and you offered sacrifices to Yahweh, or you were a part of the uh, Roman pantheon of gods, whether you worshipped uh, Greek gods or Roman gods, whether it was Zeus or Jupiter or Mars or Aphrodite, whatever you worship, you would go to their temple and you would offer a sacrifice so that you could uh, get their favor. And for some reason, this group of people, they, they didn't go to a temple and they didn't offer a sacrifice. Instead, what they did is on the first day of the week, they would get up and they would, they would gather in each other's homes and they would gather in gardens and they would sing songs, songs of gratitude for the fact that they no longer had to offer sacrifices because their God King was the final sacrifice for their sins. And the other thing that they did, which was so strange, is they ignored like all of the cultural distinctions of the day. They completely did away with and just ignored the caste system. So there was no longer Jew and Gentile. There was no longer uh, men and women as it pertained to some type of hierarchy. Uh, there was no longer uh, slave and free. In fact, they had a term for each other. They would call each other brothers and sisters. And so slaves and, and their owners would refer to one another as brother and sister. And the wealthy would refer to the poor as brother and sister. And most surprising of all, this new movement based around this resurrected king, they were insistent that their king instructed them to abide by current government officials and current governing authorities because their king had done the same thing that when their king was arrested by the current governing authorities, he did not rise up. He didn't rally his men together. He didn't uh, get military might and try to overthrow them, but that he gave himself to his enemies and that his father raised him from the dead. So what do you call these people? Because they hadn't started a new religion. That wasn't the point. They, they hadn't even changed their religion. All they had done was changed their allegiance. And so we read in Luke, and, and Luke is this guy who is a, uh, he's a Greek physician. He writes, uh, we have a couple of his writings, and he writes to a guy named Theophilus, both in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts. Both are a part of our scriptures. And he writes both of these. In the beginning of both of these, he writes and says, Dear Theophilus, I wanted to write to you because you've heard about all the things that are taking place around the Roman Empire concerning this man, Jesus of Nazareth. 
And as you can imagine, as Luke is writing this, there's this buzz around the Roman Empire that, that Jesus has risen from the dead and, and it's spreading like crazy. And, and so Luke writes to his friend Theophilus and says, I wanted to write a detailed account so that you could be sure of the things that you're hearing. So you could have confidence. And there's a lot of rumors going around. And I want you to know the truth. So I've investigated it. I've talked to uh, eyewitnesses. In fact, Luke had spent time traveling with the Apostle Paul on some of his missionary journeys. And so Luke gives this detailed chronological account of the life of Jesus and then everything that took place after Jesus' death and resurrection. So here we find ourselves in the first century, probably 15 years after Jesus had been put to death and risen from the dead. And here's what Luke writes. He's writing about this group of people in Antioch, and he says this. It was in Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. They were called Christians. They didn't know what to call them. And this wasn't like a, a cool new name given to a new sports team that had come up in Antioch, right? This was, this was an accusation that was leveled against people who had shifted their allegiance to a different king other than Caesar. This wasn't even a religious term. This was a political term. This had huge political implications. It meant someone of the political party of the Christ, they didn't call them Christians to differentiate them from people who were Zeusians or Jupiterians or Marsians. Those terms didn't exist. So it wasn't like, well, we have to differentiate them from the people that worship Mars or Jupiter or Zeus. In fact, this was a political term that was used to differentiate people who had allegiance to Caesar or to Herod. So you could be a Caesarani, someone who had allegiance to Caesar. That was a term. There was a political term, Herodiani, that you had allegiance to Herod, or you had someone who would be called a Christiani, allegiance to Christ. And eventually, following Jesus would become a crime in the Roman Empire, not because of what they believed. Rome didn't care what you believed. It was because it was considered to be anti-Roman not to pledge your allegiance to Caesar. Christians in the first century were not persecuted because of what they believed. Followers of Jesus in the first century were, or were, were persecuted because of whom they chose to obey. They reoriented their lives around Jesus and his kingdom. Herod understood this. And he chose to resist. The wise men understood this, and they chose to worship. And the people of Antioch, these Greeks and these Romans, they heard the message of the good news that a king had been sent to earth and it changed everything, that heaven and earth had collided in the town of Bethlehem and they reoriented their lives around that message. They didn't just believe, they participated. They didn't just believe, they obeyed. Jesus was more than just a sin forgiver. That was only the beginning. Jesus forgave their sins, absolutely. But Jesus was the intersection of heaven and earth and he was their king. And they determined to participate in the kingdom of heaven that had come to earth each and every day of their lives by the way that they lived their lives. And so the question, again, that every single one of us needs to wrestle with every single day is this. Is Jesus my king? The angel said his kingdom would exist forever, that his kingdom would never end, that his reign would never end, which means Jesus is still the king. And the question is, is he my king? Is he... Is he have I submitted my way of living? Have I, have I decided to submit and surrender my will and my priorities and my decisions and my relationships to Jesus and his kingdom? When I was a kid, I was uh, 
probably 10 years old, and it was New Year's Eve. My dad sat uh, our whole family down. Uh, my mom and dad, we had four kids. I had an older sister, younger brother, younger sister. I was probably 10 years old. And uh, he, it was 11.45. We're just about to, you know, ring in the new year. And he sat us down and gave us a strip of paper. And on each of us, a little strip of paper. And on it, it just said two words, be there. Like, Thanks, Dad. And then he explained it to us, and he, he said, look, at some point in your lives, uh, you know, you, you're gonna, you guys are going to get older, and uh, you're going to get married, and you're going to have kids and families of your own, and at some point, me and mom won't be here anymore, and, you know, just, just kind of walking through just, you know, life, right? And he said, and you're going to make all kinds of decisions throughout your life. And here's what I want more than anything. I just... No matter what happens, no matter what paths you go down, no matter what decisions you make, no matter what your family looks like, at the end of it all, I want you to be there. Like, like we're all going to meet up again in heaven. So make sure that whatever paths you go down, whatever decisions you make, be there. Which is a little heavy when I was 10, <laughs> if I'm being honest. I was like, okay, Dad. And... Uh, <laughs> And in the church background that I grew up in, the primary sort of emphasis was make sure that when I reached a certain age of understanding that I prayed a prayer and asked God to forgive my sins. That was the primary, and maybe you grew up in, a, in, a, in that sort of a church environment as well. And to be honest with you, I prayed that prayer a lot when I was a kid. And so when I was, you know, 10 and 11 and 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 and 17, because especially like there were some weekends where I'm like, oh, I better pray that prayer again. Get to church, you know, like, oh, whatever I did last weekend, I'm, I don't know if I'm in. I gotta, I'm going to pray the prayer again. And uh, it's fascinating because even now, like, I, I've had some buddies uh, who are part of Westbridge, and uh, even a few weeks ago, say, you know what, man, I, I haven't been checking the box every week. I'm like, dude, you don't have to check the box every week. You're in. This isn't a, you don't have to pray the prayer every week. You're in. But as a result of this, here's what happened. And I, I think it, sometimes it happens here with different people. And it definitely was part of my experience growing up. Is, uh, and it's nobody's fault. It's just a part of that dynamic of going, we want to make sure that uh, people say that prayer to ask Jesus to forgive their sins because we want them to, to, be a part, to go to heaven when they die. And, and I'll be honest with you, many church cultures have a focus on making sure, make sure your sins are forgiven so that you go to heaven when you die. That's the primary focus. And don't get me wrong, uh, I want to go to heaven when I die, because <laughs> I'm not anti that. Uh, and in fact, uh, I'm, I'm super thankful for my parents and for their emphasis on making sure that we knew Jesus and understood that. But the message of Jesus is not primarily pray this prayer so that you can get to heaven when you die. The message of Jesus is not primarily about you getting to heaven. The message of Jesus is primarily about heaven getting into you. So that you understand that you can participate in it here and now, that eternity is already in session. And you can participate. And every single weekend, we offer people that opportunity to pray a prayer and ask Jesus to forgive their sins. We'll always give you that opportunity. But if you ask Jesus to forgive your sins and to lead your life, he will forgive your sins. But if you never let him lead your life, you're still going to go to heaven when you die. But you may miss out on the opportunity to participate in heaven here and now. The forgiven people did not change the world in the first century. It wasn't people who just experienced the forgiveness of Jesus that changed the world. It was the forgivers who changed the world. It was people who said, because of what Jesus has done for me, I'm going to do for others. 
And because Jesus has forgiven me, I'm going to forgive others. And because Jesus loved his enemies, I'm going to love my enemies. And because Jesus has loved me self-sacrificially, I'm going to love others self-sacrificially. And because Jesus put me ahead of himself, I'm going to put others ahead of myself. I'm going to follow the example of my King Jesus because I don't just believe it. I'm actually going to participate in it. That's what changed the world. That's what has changed the world from the beginning. And that's what will change our community is when a group of people don't just believe, but they participate. They don't just say, God, uh, you know, I have a belief in you. Thanks for forgiving my sins. But they say, no, I'm going to, in the way that I live my life, in the way that I conduct my affairs, in the way that I conduct myself in relationships, in the way that I live, in the way that I love, in the way that I forgive, in my generosity, in my influence, in what, however I handle whatever has been entrusted to me, let it line up with the values of this kingdom that is not of this world but it is for this world. So, is Jesus your king? Is he more than a sin forgiver? Is he more than a religious icon? Is he more than a box that you check off once a week or once a month or every Christmas and Easter? Late in his life, the Apostle John, one of Jesus' closest friends and followers, he's writing about Jesus. He's, he's thinking about Jesus. He's thinking about, how do I describe what Jesus was like? How do, how do I put it into words what he was like, because he's thinking about, man, just all the difference that Jesus made and this kingdom that got established and how we can enter in. And he finds the words, and this is, this is what John says to describe Jesus. In him was life. And that life was like, it was the light of the entire human race. John says, in, in Jesus, life itself sprang from him. And it was like, in a dark world, he was like a lighthouse. I mean, it was just like light in the darkness. He says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And John is writing this during a very, very, very dark time. John is writing this during a time where it's most likely that both Peter and Paul have been executed by Nero. It's very probable that as he's writing this, the 10th legion of Rome is about to surround Jerusalem and destroy the city of Jerusalem and burn Herod's temple to the ground. And so John is writing in a very, very dark time. It's so dark. And yet his time with Jesus reminds him, in all this darkness, the light shines and the darkness has not overcome it. And it didn't then, and it doesn't now, and it never will. Because Jesus, the king, Jesus, the Christ, has been sent into the world, and he will forgive your sins, but I'm telling you, that's just the beginning. It's so much bigger than that. He invites you to submit your life, to participate in the never-ending, upside-down, others-first, self-sacrificial, loving kingdom of God. And so I want to invite you. If you've never said yes to following Jesus, I want to invite you to pray this prayer, Jesus, forgive my sins, and he will. But I want every one of us to consider in the busyness of this Christmas season and the chaos and all the nostalgia and all the fun memories and all of the fun things that we do, is Jesus my king? And that's something each of us should wrestle to the ground each and every day. Is he my king? Is, is, it, is it religion out there somewhere and I check that box and I'm glad that he's forgiven my sins and I, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting to heaven someday? Or is it I get to participate in the kingdom of heaven come to earth? Here, now, every day in the way that I live my life. And when you live that way, you will experience life to the fullest. 
If you've never said that prayer, if you've never said yes to the invitation to be a part of God's family, just agree with this prayer as we close. God, forgive my sins. Please forgive my sins. Forgive me for all the times I've missed the mark. And thank you for sending Jesus into the world. Thank you that I don't have to offer sacrifices over and over and over again, but that Jesus is the final sacrifice for my sins for once and for all time. And so I want to say yes to your invitation. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. And help me not just to stop there. Help me to put my trust in you. Help me to follow you. Help me to participate in the kingdom of heaven come to earth. And God, for every single one of us who at some point in our lives said yes to the invitation to be a part of your family, but through the busyness and the chaos and just life, maybe we've kept heaven and earth separated conveniently. We haven't let the kingdom of heaven impact the way that we live here on earth. And so I pray for every one of us as we reflect on that this season, give us the wisdom to know how to respond and then give us the courage to do it. In Jesus' name. Amen.